because the whole IT recruitment uh, space is uh, flawed with uh, a lot of inefficiencies and uh, lots of IT recruiters know nothing about IT. So uh, I saw that firsthand while I was the CTO and I wanted to change it. So we spent a year with a few of my colleagues building the academy, the digital products, the live training eventually. And then we transitioned slowly to uh, also the uh, client work. Hey folks, and welcome to That Tech Show with me, Chris Adams, and Sam Gregory. So on the show today, we've got Michael Uhas, but more about that later. Let's have a quick check-in. How's it going, Chris? <laughs> I don't feel that you're matching my level of enthusiasm today, <laughs> Sam. Uh, <laughs> I, tried to, I was trying to segue it very nicely, but I, uh, yeah, I couldn't think of anything to do, so I was like, passing, throwing it back in your court. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, good. I think we're, it's uh, it's really, really, really busy for us at the moment. Uh, so hopefully we'll be getting a few more things out because we've missed an episode, right? We missed a week. Yeah, we did. So sorry, folks. Wait, wait, we, yeah, well, I was going to suggest that we release two in one then, but no, no. <laughs> no, we've got plenty in the bank. We've got loads of great guests coming up, but things just uh, get on top, don't they, really, when you're... Um, as busy as you are and a podcast isn't your main business because you know those people out there you don't know but you know it's it's not a lucrative business running podcasts it's very loss making we do it for the love of speaking to people but you know hopefully it's uh, it, it's it's going to it's going to grow we've got some great listeners obviously that you you folks joining in and tuning into us every week on that note do we tell them about do we let them in on the the potential community do we let them in on that well, yeah, I mean, actually, that's a great point. If you if you are out there and you're enjoying this show and you'd like to talk to other people who do enjoy this show and get to meet more people, um, you know, we are put, putting together a, or planning to put together a community and we're figuring out what the best way of doing that is at the moment. So, you know, get get in touch. You can get in touch with us via the website or you can drop us a line at hello at that tech dot show um, or via any of the social media platforms. And And, you know, if you've got some ideas of how you'd like to engage with us or with the rest of the community of other fellow listeners or even the guests that we've had on the show, then, you know, please drop us a line. Also, let us know where you're listening from. I mean, we kind of know, but we want to know where our most engaging listeners are from. And then, because of course we can, we need to start in London, but do let us know because we want to know where all you folks are from in the world because that'll, that'll help us a lot, I think. If you're listening from far and wide and you're, you, you're, uh, you're really getting something out of the podcast, drop us a line there as well. We'd love to know um, where you're listening to, uh, what, to us from and what you like about the show. And, you know, we've got plenty more episodes coming up as we hit our milestone. We're, we're coming up to our milestone of 50 episodes. So, you know, let us know what you think and which bits you like and which bits you don't. And uh, we'll happily take that feedback. That'd be really handy. That'd be very handy. Please, you listener, not the other listeners. We want to know yeah, what just you, you think. Yeah. Listener, okay. <laughs> Just ignore the others. Yeah, don't listen to them. <laughs> anyway, we uh, we should probably get on to uh, to who we have on the show this week. This week we have Michael Uhas of Geek Recruiters, a serial entrepreneur. Um, he'll be talking to us all about his progression from successful startup CTO to technical recruitment and all of the things in between, like his books training courses and public speaking engagements yeah and what i really like about this uh, episode is talking about the challenges of finding good technologists and how do you find good engineers because technical recruitment is a really hard job if you're not technical as most recruiters are uh, but michael was a successful cto in his own right and is here to help and actually you know even some of his other resources on youtube he's giving advice to uh, to recruiters and how to understand technology in, in a way that will help you become a better recruiter. Mm, so if you are a recruiter and you're looking to, and you're not technical and you are looking to broaden your uh, understanding, then this will be a great place to start. But we do encourage you to follow on and, and learn more about Michael and what he does because uh, it's a great resource. But uh, And even if you're not a recruiter and you just want to be better at interviewing people, again, mm -hmm. it's another, another great, um, another reason to listen. Yeah, nice one. Well, it's probably about time we hear from Michael. This is Michael. Thanks for, for having me today. I uh, used to be an IT professional, an IT consultant, software developer, and then a CTO in a fast-growing startup. And uh, these days, I run 
a tech recruitment agency and also a tech recruitment academy. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I'm super curious to get into what you do currently, but you've you've been through it all by the sounds of things. You've done the you've been a developer and engineer yourself. What, what type of engineering was that? Were you web developer, app developer, or anything like that? So I uh, started my career as uh, the uh, data engineer. So I worked with Oracle, PLSQL. That was great fun, but that must have been ten years ago. And then I shifted uh, my focus uh, to web development. And um, as uh, we have started the uh, startup uh, in Thailand a few years ago, I was really taking care of uh, the full stack, backend, frontend, mobile apps. Uh, and then we started onboarding new colleagues uh, to join our team. And I also transitioned more to the management part of it. What was it called? Sorry, again. It was called Hotel Quickly. Uh, in the United States, uh, there is Hotel Tonight. So uh, we started around the same time. Hotel Tonight in the United States started uh, uh, you know, focusing on the last minute deals, last minute uh, hotel booking. And we started uh, in Asia. So we were based in uh, Bangkok. We had teams in Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia. So uh, we fundraised $11 million. It was, it was a great opportunity to learn how we, or what does it take to run a fast growing startup. And uh, some of us in the management uh, burned out uh, along the way. So it was also a good uh, learning experience and also some self-discovery, which then helped me to transition to uh, IT recruitment and uh, the IT recruitment academy itself as well. Mm -hmm. And how was that transition, just to stay on the, the startup, how was that transition from being an engineer, being a developer into kind of more of a management role? So it was hard because I'm the kind of a guy who likes to code. You know, I like to get my hands dirty. And uh, as we were onboarding more and more people at the beginning, it was uh, still relatively easy because I was a part of the team and still coding and doing code reviews. But as the IT team grew to 20, 30 people, I was no longer able to code because I also had some other responsibilities. Uh, I was uh, also responsible for the BI, business intelligence team. So there was not enough time to code. And um, I also felt like I'm not doing really what I would love to do, right? Suddenly you wake up one day and you are on meetings one after another, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, some strategies or whatnot, preparing presentations for investors. And sometimes it's really interesting because, uh, because if someone asked me a few years ago, Michael, this will your day look like, would you like to? Join, join this company, would like to embark on this journey? I was like, oh my God, no, like I want to do something else. But as the company grows, you suddenly one day wake up to, you know, this is your day, this is what it looks like. So just uh, get used to it. You sort of get into the rhythm, get into the motions and all of a sudden you find yourself caught up in, in, a, in a life, in a, in, a, in a situation where you're not too, um, not too happy with. Yeah, yeah. And it reminds me, how frogs are boiled, you know, the temperature is uh, increased uh, slowly and steadily and they don't really notice it, right? So that's probably uh, happening to some of us in IT and IT management when, you know, we slowly transition day by day, you know, one more meeting uh, per week and suddenly you don't have one meeting per week, but suddenly you have, you know, 15 meetings with uh, one-on-ones and whatnot, which, you know, some people really enjoy. But um, I still like to get my hands hands dirty, create uh, some products uh, from scratch, create prototypes, to, you know, bring some products to the market, and um, eventually, um, you know, as the company get to seventy million dollars in revenues, we were just tweaking and optimizing uh, some APIs, which was uh, not really what I was uh, passionate about anymore. Mm -hmm. So I come, I come from, and, and Chris actually comes from more of a consulting and I've never really been interested in the kind of product side of things and, and developing a product. And, but when you describe it in that way, where you're just maintaining and, and building something, it, I sort of like that idea, but I think you forget the in-between. It's that day by day transition that, what was it? Rock boiling? I've never heard that, that quote before. Or, no, frog, frog. 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 Okay. <laughs> You've heard that quote, haven't you, Sam? No, I haven't. You've not heard that one? No, no, no. Frog boiling. Yeah, I mean, it's not a particularly pleasant term. And obviously, 
maybe it doesn't align with I'm a vegetarian yeah exactly it doesn't align with your diet I dare (laughs) expose myself to that kind of language yeah it's (laughs) progressive boiling they're not aware of it because the temperature changes so slowly you know it's it's the uh, the progressive yeah but building a product is about that it's that it's that slow build I mean how long are we talking before you left the company like from startup to you leaving how many years how many months was that even mm, it was five years five years uh since we have co-founded the company and until i i left it so uh five years slowly day by day but this uh experience also now helps me to um to to help other cpos and other engineering teams to realize who they should get on board because they are often focused on the very technical part of the uh, requirements, which is you know, a Java backend developer or front-end React developer. They focus on those basic requirements, but they don't think about uh, the other side of the coin. So we need front-end React developer who is excited about starting projects from scratch, or we need a front-end React developer who will be uh, keen to just optimize some existing website and tweak it a little here and there and polish every single a pixel on the website. This kind of experience also ha- helps me now to to, to uh, build more efficient development teams. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that's why I wanted to kind of uh, just pedal on this subject a little bit because not only that, I think it will help people who are being recruited into maybe the next role, the next step up, and what what that transition is. If you are talking to in in, in your company now talking to a developer who is wanting to transition into that management role what realistically it should they expect is it you know the glitz and glamour i'm not sure how many developers think of management as glitz and glamour but is it is it what they expect in their mind and and, and kind of preparing them for it so but uh, so is this startup kind of still going now or did they did they fold or what's the status of the startup Mm, so the investors merged uh, the company with their other company. They took the technology, they took customers and um, merged with uh, their existing business, which was a way how to still still sustain, but uh, eventually the brand uh, faded out. Yeah, that was not such a pleasant ending, not what we envisioned when we started the company, when we you know were looking at the exit, uh, you know, potential exit. But um you know, that also helped me to shift my, my perspective because I realized that it's the journey that matters, not the exit itself. And that's also why I started the other company now without funding, without uh, any investors. And we just go through the pure hassle of uh, following where the cash is and we develop products. We uh, release uh, you know new products uh, every few months and also some services where we can like really quickly cash on those opportunities. So, I mean, getting cash from investors is great, but I also saw firsthand how easy it is just to throw the money out of the window. We we fundraised um, $11 million or slightly more. And often we were just throwing money at the problem instead of just really figuring out what should be the right solution. And it's uh, it's totally different when you are now investing your own money and thinking, oh, well, it will cost 5,000 euros. Let's think about it properly before we pay the invoice so that's uh that's a different different mindset i think that transition from it being someone else's money to it being your money is really interesting how do you change your mindset to think about spending the money in the way that you would have spent it previously i guess or or do you do that is there a different way around it well, it's uh, different when you realize you could pay the money to, yeah, like to yourself. You know, you, as a business owner, I can send the money to my private account and buy whatever, right, uh, within the amount that is available. But there is no investor that I need to ask for for an approval, and I don't do it just because I want to reinvest the cash, right? So then I'm very cautious about how do I reinvest those, you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand euros. You know, I, I noticed that previously, when it was just some budget in a spreadsheet, you know, some money that investors sent us, we were thinking about the spreadsheet. Like, hey guys, you know, we need to make the spreadsheet work. You know, we need to decrease costs. We need to increase profitability. But now it is like, 
hey guys, I have here 10,000 euros uh, this month and I don't want you to waste it because otherwise I could just transfer the money to my account and pay something really nice or travel with my wife and kids somewhere. And I'm not, so make sure that we don't waste the money. So that's, uh, that's a different, uh, different mindset. And also our employees realize it. We have, uh, what, like 20 people. So they also realize it and they feel this kind of pressure. It's a different pressure than from investors because, uh, you know, investors could also uh, fire you as, as the manager at the end of the day. They know that no one can fire me, but they feel that the money is mine and, uh, I want it back. They can, you know, play with it. In the short run, they can reinvest it, they can launch campaigns, but in a month or two, I want the money back and then we can reinvest it again. How do you think that affects the, sort of the, uh, the, the culture within an organization? Because obviously that is a, I think, I imagine it probably takes you a little while to come around to that conclusion about how you're investing it and how willing you are to let it go in, the, in, the, you know, in exchange for it potentially coming back to you at a later date. And it is a, it is definitely a different a different mindset, and I think anyone who's tried to bootstrap a startup with their own cash will will sort of feel that. How, how do you or how do you think that affects the, the culture within the rest of the organization if they're aware of that? Like, do, do you think that it's allowing employees to do the best they can? I mean, how do you balance the risk versus reward? Well, it uh, certainly increases the ownership. Not among everyone, but uh, especially the senior management team, they feel more ownership just because they see this is the money. We are talking, you know, not much, like 50,000 euros uh, per month, say, right? So it's not too much money, but still, you know, if half of it is wasted, then we cannot pay the salaries for next month. And they realize that there is no backup, you know, there is no investor that I can call to and ask for a little favor, you know, it's just us who need to make it happen. And if we don't, then people in the company may not have uh, their salaries paid. So the, the, the sense of ownership is uh, much higher than in a regular company or, or a corporation, especially corporation where, you know, every invoice, every salary is paid on time. People um, don't feel this, uh, this ownership. But the, I suppose the counterpoint as well it is that I mean you mentioned it yourself you're you're not answering to anybody you're not answering to an external investor. How much of an advantage is that? Well, it's a great advantage, uh, especially in the short run. At the same time, I'm not saying that we will never have any investor. It's just that at the beginning we didn't want to get anyone on board because uh, you know you need to give up a lot of uh, equity before you get some traction and revenues. So, what kind of advantage is it? Um, you know, in the short run, it's a substantial advantage because you can also find the product market fit without the investor, which we did. You know, we have we have steady revenue streams uh, from different business lines. So in a few months or in a year, we will be in a much better position to get an investor on board and with very different conditions, right? We will be in a position where the business is growing, it's profitable. So uh, we will be able to set our own terms so you're planning to use that as a, as a growth tool in the in the end, but obviously you retain enough equity in the, in the start, I suppose, to to keep it independent and, as you say, find that market fit. But you're not ruling it out as a as a growth tactic. Where where would that trigger be for you to to expand and go after getting that 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 external investment? What what would be the tipping point? Well, uh, it always comes to uh, sales, eventually business development, right? Um, so, uh, so far we reinvest what we earn. We brought a new sales manager just uh, on board in December to take care of uh, those incoming leads. And at some point, I envision we will need business development in the United States, in the UK, in Germany, which is really expensive, right? So um, we have two different business lines, one that is able to recover uh, cash really quick through the sales of uh, digital products. So we sell training, we sell courses, we sell life training programs. So we get the money even before the program starts, and then we can reinvest it in other business lines, but it has some ceiling. And um, I guess once we you know, want to expand to the United States, Canada, and the UK, then we will need to bring those investors on board to finance that expansion. This is a really interesting kind of hybrid approach to to me, I don't, I don't know 
about you, Chris, but like th- this company was merging this idea of startup investment driven organization from a kind of traditional company where you wouldn't typically seek constant investment. You would potentially look for a bank loan. I'm fortunate enough that I didn't, when I started my company, I didn't look for a bank loan, but many people do. Going from that traditional approach and then taking your startup sensibilities and your experience and saying, well, at some point we might seek to look investment. So where where has that idea come from? Or do you, is that quite normal or have you seen that elsewhere? Talk to me a little bit about that. Mm. So I have the experience with fast growth uh, startups in the past. Even before I moved to Thailand, I had another startup in the Czech Republic where we also fundraised. That one also went out of business. So uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that was the second one. But you know, with each of these experiences, I, I feel like I'm getting stronger. In, <laughs> and that's also probably why I didn't want to raise the third one right at the start of the company. And um, just to comment on what you just said, um, I mean, there are at least two different ways how to start a company and be really successful and happy eventually in the business. One is to have this lifestyle business where you don't need any investment. You don't really need any team, maybe just three, four people. That's a sweet spot. I know quite a lot of recruiters, uh, headhunters who have this uh, one-man show business. They make $200,000, $300,000 a year and they don't want to grow it. You know, they hit the ceiling of their potential because days only have 24 hours, right? They don't want to grow the team. They don't want to manage teams. On the other side, uh, you have uh, fast growth startups that need to reach some scale in order to be really interesting for investors where you have lower margins so that you need to have higher revenues, right? And that you can only achieve when you have some investment because you need to get uh, people on board, you need to uh, fund marketing, uh, etc. And our model is uh, something in between temporarily. We started the performance business, not the lifestyle business, the performance business, but we funded it not from investors, not from a bank loan, but from the sales of digital products. So the live training, uh, video courses, because those have uh, 97% margin. The 3% is just transaction fees uh, from Stripe or PayPal. So you have high high margin. You can sell it really quick. People or companies, we have clients that are international companies. They pay thousands of dollars uh, or euros for one training, two-week-long training. So we are able to take the money and then reinvest it to the uh, performance business. Interesting. So did you start building products first or did you you know but what was the timeline and, and the decisions around those timelines then mm-hmm. so we spent the first year building the digital products uh, even discovering what do recruiters need because the whole it recruitment uh, space is uh, flawed with uh, a lot of inefficiencies and uh, lots of it recruiters know nothing about it So uh, I saw that firsthand while I was the CTO and I wanted to change it. So we spent a year with a few of my colleagues building the academy, the digital products, the live training eventually. And then we transitioned slowly to uh, also the uh, client work. With with recruitment, you know, it's a numbers game and it's uh, sometimes like lottery because uh, you may have a great client, but you may never really fulfill their vacancy just because you don't find the ideal candidate or they may work with two different agencies and the candidate may come from the other one right so you need to balance uh, the, the the cash flow uh, in case uh, you spend two months working on some requirement and then the client decides not to hire the candidate which happened uh, to us uh, you know a few times already that's, that's really interesting because I'm in the process of building some you know, digital products and, and various things like that. You mentioned these two companies almost. Are, are they treated as such? Do you have a team of developers and a marketing team and you know, all, all that around your digital products? And, and I'll be interested to know how you're getting the name out there. And then do you have a, you know, a floor full of recruiters, a floor, digital floor uh, full of recruiters calling you know, keep in contact and, and, and going out there and getting work? Or are they kind of this 
fusion of the two? Are they, you know, have you got developers who are in the evening uh, calling up candidates or, or what? What? How? How is it set up like that? <laughs> um, so we have one company and different customer-facing brands. So um, there is one company on the invoice, right? But um, that's the name that no one really knows about. We don't build a brand around the legal name, but we have different brands that people can really quickly see what is it all about. So one of the brands is uh, Tech Recruitment Academy. So when we have some advertisement, people see Tech Recruitment Academy. Okay, well, they probably do some courses about tech recruitment. It quickly resonates uh, with them. Uh, then we have um, the second brand, which is uh, Geek Recruiters. So that's our brand for recruitment services, where we also uh, want to be perceived as uh, those recruiters who can recruit geeks. You know, uh, we we build these brands that are for the particular audience uh, and people, even in the company, they have contracts with the one legal entity, but they work for different brands. Well, that's put my mind at reassurance and we won't say anything more about it. So that's good. Well, I have one more thing to say, actually, Sam. Go I mean, on, I'm, go I'm curious. If, you, if you're setting up those different brands, is that do you think that's been the right thing to do or, or, or um, has it been harder to build two brands simultaneously? I would say, and I would do it again. So um, uh, if it is harder or easier, you know, it really depends. Um, I mean, what, what does it really mean harder, right? Um, it it is probably harder to uh, um, to to build two brands because you need to have two different websites. But in fact, we have like what eight different or or ten. One is for some particular product or for some ebook that I wrote. So we have very specific domains, and uh, and there is a thin line between a domain, a brand, and a company name. So it is harder to to build it. But then I would say it is easier to communicate to customers because uh, say if i have a brand like uh, nyg then what you know what does it really mean then you need to explain to some customer nyg is our recruitment agency and we also do training and we also do career coaching right so it's you know you can do it when you are ibm or microsoft right but even if you think about nestle for example or craft foods or mendeles actually mendeles is the name of the parent company right but then they have different brands, for example, Milka or Kinder, right? They have different brands and customers really quickly recognize the brand. They like it, even though the same people in the same building come up with the product uh, itself. So I found it easier to market, easier to communicate to customers, and um, I would totally do it again. So I think that's a really interesting point because I, I'm not sure especially for us more techie people out there, if we would necessarily jump to the conclusion of saying, actually, it might be easier for us to create a targeted brand rather than a brand that has all of these things that it does. You know, and I think that's, um, it's a it's a really interesting point. Like, did you, was that immediately apparent to you? Or is that something you've learned over over time? Because I suppose that you've got you've built up a lot of marketing experience from doing the recruitment work because that's a you know a core component of it hmm. yeah yeah that's a that's a great question i think it comes back to my my desire and my passion to start new products and experiment um, and it's so much easier when you give it some new name because then you can also kill it really quick <laughs> uh just yeah. to give you a, a real world example um Say two years ago, from when we are recording this podcast, um, COVID COVID started, right? And we had already some uh, some clients signed for the training, some B two B clients, right? Some companies, staffing agencies, and within two weeks, all of them terminated our agreements because suddenly they thought, "Hey, we need to lay off." So why would we be training people, right? So they terminated one contract after another. And we were like, oh my God, like what's going on? You know, we cannot, you know, fulfill. It's unlikely that we will be able to onboard some new clients. So we need to iterate and we need to go where the money is. Staffing agencies will not pay for the training. Uh, companies are not hiring. So we need to go after individuals who have the money and they are sitting at home and they need some help with their career. So we went after IT managers and uh, 
CTOs, VP of engineering, but not to offer them recruitment services, but to offer them career coaching. And for this, uh, I created a brand called Career Upgrade Tools, which is uh, still live. We still use it. We still get customers uh, for this. And we were able to just approach customers. It would be so much harder if I just approached them with this, you know, company, you know, NYG or whatever, you know, numbers, uh, letters. So I approached them with Career Upgrade Tools, like, hey, you know, we are this company, Career Upgrade Tools. We can help you with your career to get more opportunities. It's harder than ever now with COVID. We can help you with your resume. We can help you thrive at interviews. Uh, we can help you uh, introduce you to some hiring managers abroad. And you only need to pay us 690 euros or 1,990. And there were people who took up on the offer and we were consulting them. So again, we were able to get some cash in the company, which um, was just thanks to us spinning off a new brand uh, really quick within a matter of two weeks, three weeks. And um, I guess I would not do it if we were stick to just the NYG company that provides the uh, training solutions, right? So uh, it's about agility. It's about openness and the attitude, you know, and you just need to go where the money is at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've been talking about <laughs> lots of things at the moment. And we spoke before the call about getting into kind of getting candidates into into their chosen industry should we should we talk about that for a little bit and talk about how on that note of of customers when you're recruiting who are you recruiting are you recruiting developers or are you recruiting recruiters <laughs> <laughs> so we hire recruiters to join our team and we recruit it professionals software developers data engineers analysts architects product owners so we recruit these people for our clients and those clients are in the United States, in the Caribbean, in Europe. It's really interesting how many how many opportunities these days uh, IT people have just because they can work for a company remotely. Uh, thanks to COVID, or, well, of course, they were doing this even before COVID, but now a lot of hiring managers who were conservative before COVID, now they are like, just get me some people who are cheaper than what we pay here because it just doesn't make sense anymore these people are not coming to the office. So why not to have people for half the price from Europe, from Eastern Europe, who will do it equally well and for half the cost? Mm -hmm. the, this is a subject I think we could probably go on for ages. And I will just say I saw a tweet this morning, uh, not even a tweet, a LinkedIn message this morning or a post saying that every time, and please answer this if you found this, every time a competitor announces they're returning back to the office, we then reach out because obviously everyone's looking for those remote first jobs and whatever. Yeah, I mean, a lot of junk gets put on put on LinkedIn. That's kind of hard to believe from my perspective. Sometimes, are you finding that? Do you find there's a sudden rush of uh, interest when there's uh, when there's an announcement of of return to the office? So uh, there are some people who during an interview tell me they want to work from an office because they have uh, a little child at home and they just cannot focus at home. Uh, but uh, it is just one out of uh, five, maybe one out of 10, probably. So say 20%. But still, the vast majority of people prefer working from home. It's questionable if they really just want to be at home alone, or they want to work for companies abroad. I would probably, you know, say rather that they want to work for companies abroad. We also relocate some of the IT professionals and then they relocate and then they work from the office, right? But still, people got lazy during COVID. They realized how much time they waste uh, with commute every day. So uh, it is what it is. And uh, we, again, started working with clients who are looking for these uh, remote professionals. Personally, I just think it's all a bit of a, a mess at the moment. I think you're right. There's some decisions around, do they really want to work from home? Are they just getting lazy? Um, what's that doing for culture? What's that doing? You know, just to be clear of that, the thing I mentioned being a whole topic in itself is this idea of how much do you actually pay someone? And is that going to then drive down, you know, at the moment, a lot of people are leaving uni and Again, please answer this because, uh, again, it's all hearsay for me at the moment. A lot of uh, people are leaving university demanding six-figure salaries. 
and they they haven't written a line of code for a professional agency in their life and and that's really causing a lot of tension there combining that with the idea that some companies have been like well why should we why should we hire you why can't we just hire a uh, you know eastern european developer who's just as good again please answer that if if are you finding that engineers coming out of uni are demanding higher higher salaries at the moment as well as this this demand for cheaper developers in far far away places mm-hmm. well they uh, don't require a six figure salary just yet uh, but uh, probably that will come soon as well just because with every job offer they receive their salary expectation elevates uh, we are talking about developers from the central or eastern europe i remember two years ago when i interviewed someone you know mid-level developer three years experience they were working for two and a half thousand dollars a month so it's what thirty thousand a year but now they tell me michael you know five six thousand dollars a year at least right and it's it's just because they are exposed to all these all these remote opportunities and a lot of hiring managers just approach them because they think it's cheaper it is cheaper still but not as cheap as it was two years ago so it is sort of elevating uh it's still less cheap it's still cheaper than in uh, london or in hamburg in berlin but um it's just a matter of a year or two years probably so so you're saying that we don't have to worry about our day rate reducing in the uk where it's just the rest of the world that's coming up to meet us <laughs> <laughs> yes yes but the rest of the world is increasing yeah yeah <laughs> that's good because we're dealing with a bit of a cost of living crisis at the moment and everything's getting very expensive and i don't think i can re- afford to reduce my day rate anymore <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm curious. You mentioned um, you mentioned before about the the recruiters being non technical, um, and how that is a problem. And I think that is a. I mean, there's going to be so many listeners listening to this who who were frantically agreeing um, when you when you were mentioning that. How do you solve that within your own company? How do you make sure that your your recruiters are able to be technically competent to? presumably this would you know i i know that you'll have a strategy behind this that it'll be to outstrip the competition just from speaking to you for uh for for however long we've been talking but how how do you solve that within your organization it's interesting that you mentioned the competition because we actually started uh upskilling competition at first i mentioned three years ago two years ago we started with those courses and programs that uh, was actually meant for other staffing agencies for international staffing agencies, even those like Manpower, uh, Manpower Experis, uh, Accenture, those are some of our clients for the recruiter training. Actually, we also train our competition, but that uh, allowed us to, you know, start the company. You know, the competition found fund us to start the recruitment part of the business, and um, we still, you know, work with them just because there is uh, an abundance of opportunities in IT. You know, we have clients from the United States and uh, the, the way I think about it is that even if we help, say, the company in the United States to upskill 10 or 20 of their colleagues, it's just a, a drop in the ocean, right, uh, overall. So uh, they will not eat up our lunch and it will just make us stronger at the end of the day as, you know, our, our recruiters. Because then I also use those materials to train my team, my colleagues. Which is what you actually uh, asked about, right? I do think what you've just mentioned though is a really interesting approach, actually, because I, I suppose that that is actually also going to help you with your own marketing, branding, etc. I suppose again, it's all you know, it all comes back around again. If you've trained somebody in a big firm and they go off and start their own place, then if they're looking for support, they may come to you as well. Yeah, 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 and that already happened. So people who saw that we trained their team in one of these large companies. They often want to become freelancers. You know, they they became uh, senior freelancers over time, and they want to start doing it on their own. But their problem is they don't have clients to work for. You know, it's not as easy to just go after some you know larger company and start working for them as a freelance recruiter. So they come to us, and we onboard them as our recruitment associates, as our partners. So we have a network of 50, 60 of these uh, associates who start working for us commission only. So like this whole ecosystem with training, it was just so, so beneficial for us, even though, you know, logically it somehow doesn't make sense because we are training our competition. But if I just look at 
how many recruiters are out there and we train what you know 10,000 of them is just a, a drop in the ocean but it allows us to improve those materials see firsthand what do other agencies do and how so that we can learn from this and do it better in our in our company it it does seem counterintuitive i think on the face of it but it's certainly there's many things that you're talking about that are sort of feeding the flywheel of that company growth and i think that's really in- insightful but anyway let's let's get back to that point then so how do you make sure your uh, your, your recruiters are uh, are technically competent mm-hmm. so we have uh, uh, very specific roles so they only focus on on uh, certain activities where i can train them easily because say on one on one end of the scale you have a full full stack recruiter so to speak this 360 degree recruiter who does everything he or she can interact with the client he or she can find candidates interview candidates submit candidates to clients negotiate right and there are very few people on the market who can do this really well in IT and uh, it's really hard to train someone to do all of these activities uh, so that's why we have very specific roles in teams for example if i would use the analogy with microservices right on one hand you have this uh, monolith application which is uh, really difficult to maintain and onboard new joiners to learn to work with this monolith monolithic application and on the other end of the scale you have a few microservices with uh, good documentation and easy onboarding so you can bring a developer to just work with the one microservice right with the one repository and that's what we do with uh, recruiters like they have very specific roles where the KPIs are very clear we can train them really quick and of course they have to go through my training to make sure that they actually can perform those uh, specific activities so getting a little bit of an insight into your training then i mean how how deep are you going are you, are you having them code are we all are we doing pair programming sessions and they're all learning tdd i mean <laughs> how, how how far are we going <laughs> well we took uh, we took a lot from uh, development so for example we do we do pair pair code or not pair coding sessions but uh, we can call it feedback sessions where they define their sourcing approach and then we give them feedback if it is reasonable or not so that's one thing obviously they don't have to code they don't have to uh, learn python because that's just uh, useless especially because one day they are recruiting python developers the next day front end react the next day java backend developers so there is no advantage in going too deep but they need to know what python for example can be used it it can be used for data science and you can recognize a data scientist based on these specific keywords like uh, I don't know NumPy or SciPy, right? So we teach them to recognize certain patterns that for someone like you or me who has been in IT for 15 years, it is sort of obvious. You know that Spring is uh, used in Java for backend development, right? So when you see a developer who has on the resume Java Spring, then you you sort of know what to expect. But people who have never worked in IT, like for them, it's complete nonsense. So we need to teach them these uh, relationships between the technology, its use case, and the typical IT role. Have you have you productized that then, and that some of these ideas and philosophies will not go away? You know, like you've just said about Spring and Java and, and Python and stuff. Is that process growing and and shaping with time or is it very kind of like here is here is a program that we've set aside to to train these people yes so uh, we created uh, several um, products as video courses but still our best-selling product is the uh, booklet with mind maps that you can see behind me it's over there that's a booklet with about 50 mind maps i have it actually here on, on my desk so listeners will not see but we are talking about these kind of mind maps where they for example have like some must-have skills, or in this case, software development, hard skills. So for example, for backend developers, what to look for, just to help them structure their thoughts about mobile developers, you know, that there is native or cross-platform hybrid development, right? And they just learn about the typical use case. So we keep developing this booklet. I, I could have never imagined this would be the bestseller. Just at first, I created it for myself because I couldn't remember all those IT terms. And I was like, okay, I'm going for an interview. 
with a data scientist. So let me just draft this mind map. And then, you know, people got interested and we started adding more and more mind maps regarding Java, JavaScript, C-sharp, cloud, DevOps, and whatnot. And this is the, uh, the best-selling product, really. Uh, That's great. What was that called, by the way? This is called uh, IT Recruiter Mind Maps. And this is uh, one, of the, one of the websites that we also have as a standalone product, just itrecruitermindmaps.com. Well, I think we can create a link to that in the, uh, in the, in the show notes. But that's really interesting, that mind map. It looks, it looks, quite, it looks fascinating. But one thing I would uh, question as well is how do you get to the difference between somebody using the IT terms, you know, ticking off those terms on, on your mind map versus them actually knowing that in detail? And do you need to know at that level? Or is that something that you're then handing off to the, to the hiring agency or the hiring agency, hiring manager, I suppose, to, to actually weed that part out in an interview? Hmm. I don't think they can really comprehend all those terms just because I cannot myself, right? You probably also work in a specific segment of IT and you are really the experts in that area. But what if tomorrow a manager comes and says, uh, hey, we need a cybersecurity uh, specialist. Like you will also need to read a few blog posts here and there, right? Just to Just to be able to absorb those uh, you know, libraries or whatnot that they use. And you will not really know what exactly is it used for. So um, we need to draw some line where it is okay not to know more about it. For that, we also have very specific screening questions that we ask candidates. That's actually what I'm responsible for. I interpret those job requirements for our colleagues. I define those screening questions. I tell them what to ask uh, about and um, then they fill in the blanks, we assess the candidate, and then the hiring manager does the uh, additional screening, additional technical especially. And it's also often not the hiring manager, but rather someone from the development team, someone who really works with the technology and can ask uh, you know, some technical nuances that uh, it would be really awkward if a recruiter asked this, and I would not even be able to assess the answer. So just getting into that portion then with the hiring manager, I presume that you will have companies that will have different approaches to how they actually interview a candidate once they've once they're through the through the doors really as a candidate. Are there particular interview techniques that a hiring manager can do that you are finding to be more successful than others? Yes, yes, uh, that's a great question. I would say as soon as the hiring manager focuses on selling the opportunity to the candidate first, they are more likely to get the right talent on board. Because a lot of people who are just starting with hiring, you know, smaller companies, they focus too much on the technical fit, right? They get a candidate and they're like, okay, now let's check if you know the latest Next.js uh, you know, uh, library. But uh, those more experience those more senior hiring managers who saw a lot of good candidates just uh, withdraw from the hiring process or just not accept the job offer, they already realized they have to sell those opportunities. They have to sell the team, the project. You know, they need to get the candidate excited because uh, these days, uh, IT professionals receive lots of offers every day, every week, lots of messages on uh, LinkedIn you know, they have a lot of opportunities to choose from. And that's why it's extra, you know, especially important to to make sure that candidates are well pre-framed as, as in marketing, right? You need to pre-frame the potential customer, the potential buyer. You do some pre-framing and then you close the candidate. You don't start talking about some details before you explain some benefits of the product, for example. I think you're right in that you can only go so far in in teaching someone or, or making people aware of, of development practices because there's only so many hours in a day. Um, did you want to pick up on anything, uh, Chris? I, yeah, I just wanted to go a little bit more into that technical interview side. We, we've had a couple of people on, on the show that have talked about different techniques and uh, also even biases um, created in interviews as well from hiring managers, asking for specific things, you know, whether that be a, a university degree or a, from a particular university or a certain amount of years of experience doing, a, doing uh, this or that. 
and then also into the, the the real depths of really pushing people through coding tests that may or may not be indicative of what life is going to be like as an engineer. Have you seen that change over the time that you've been doing this? Have you seen any things that are more advantageous than others? And, you know, also specifically bringing into that biases as well. I realize that's an open-ended question, but um, have you got any any sort of comments around around that that we could explore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's changing and uh, it's probably changing for the worse uh, now when I'm thinking about it just because of all these uh, remote uh, opportunities, right? Uh, we have clients who come from San Francisco or from London or from Germany, and they are like, hey, we are looking for a developer. It doesn't really matter where the developer is from, but actually we want the developer to be from Western Europe. And then they reject all the candidates from uh, from Eastern Europe or from uh, from Russia, right? Which, uh, which is really unfortunate. You know, we don't discriminate anyone, so we submit those candidates anyway once they fit requirements and uh, we cannot really assess the cultural fit because we are not part of the company. But uh, we've noticed a lot of hiring managers just uh, reject those candidates who who come from certain destinations, which is really uh, unfair. And um, I've noticed also uh, that some candidates are rejected even if they moved, for example, from uh, Eastern Europe to Germany or to Portugal, but you know the hiring manager came back and said like, "Hey, this is just you know someone from Ukraine working in Spain. I'll not pay him as much as I thought I would." And I'm like, "Dude, like, come on, this is just unbelievable!" Like the guys, and he's like, "No, it's just he just pretends to be in Spain. He will be working from Ukraine." And I'm like, "But why does it matter, right? You are looking for someone to work on your product, to be a part of the team. Why does it matter if it is?" someone from Ukraine working in Portugal or Spain, why, why do you care that much? But, you know, a lot of uh, hiring managers have this, uh, this bias and uh, yeah, it's really hard to work with them. So um, once we notice this, we try to part ways just because it's really hard also on our end, then we cannot tell the candidate that he was rejected because of the discrimination. So uh, then we need to come up with some generic uh, message, right? So... Um, and you, and you think that's getting worse? Well, with the remote work, because um, as an example, before COVID, uh, the companies were looking for talents in the geographical area, mostly. But now they're like, hey, we have a budget, 60,000 a year, just get us someone from Europe or wherever, right? Just as soon as uh, the person can work from our time zone. And I'm like, okay, so if you look at the map, you know, in the... European time zone, Central Europe, it's also uh, South Africa or, or Nigeria, actually. We have uh, great candidates from Nigeria. And they're like, oh, well, you know what? Not from Nigeria. I'm like, well, but they meet all your requirements. Like, no, but we want, you know, we want people from Western Europe. I'm not saying it gets worse uh, overall, but uh, with our clients who are looking for remote developers, and especially if those clients are you know, in the United States or in San Francisco, especially probably, well, then this this bias is even more prevalent. Did you ever get to the bottom of what, what their prejudices are with regards to why they won't, they want particularly um, Western European? Mm -hmm. So one thing is uh, when the uh, developer is supposed to be customer facing, so they would uh, respond to... Um, some customer support tickets, I mean, the technical ones, uh, not ge general customer service, but IT support, or when the developer is supposed to build some public SDK and they would be interacting with other developers who use that particular SDK. So I guess this kind of you know front-end facing uh, aspect of it uh, is, is one thing, which you know probably they think it's better if John Smith you know, is the developer than Nihali Auma, you know, because it's sometimes really obvious just from the name that someone is from Africa, right? But just just by the sound of it, that's what I assume is the the problem with uh, some of our clients, and with others, it's the uh, culture fit. So once they have, say, if the company has uh, twenty developers and you bring one from Eastern Europe, it's not a big deal because you you still can maintain the original culture. But once you start adding more and more developers from, say, Africa or Eastern Europe, 
then at some point, the hiring manager worries that the culture will be destroyed and they will have way too many people from, you know, uh, Eastern Europe or Russia. And, you know, that was one of the, one of the concerns. Uh, I just, that's, that's, that's bonkers to me to, to ruin the culture. What? You don't want a culture of people getting along and uh, all, all different nations, all different, you know, dialects. You don't want that culture. You don't want that kind of uh, openness. That's just, anyway. I mean, and just to touch on that tech interview side of things as well, though, have you seen different levels of success depending on how people are actually interviewing people on 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 site, you know, versus putting people through design tests, like refactoring tests, uh, which I actually personally hate. And uh, like, you know, like, we're going to code this random thing from scratch, or here's an algorithm I want you to develop from fundamentals. You know, have you seen that evolve over time? And are you seeing people have different levels of success with different approaches? Not particularly with uh, regards to different types, um, or probably just we just haven't had you know, uh, a significant amount of candidates to really uh, uh, base uh, any conclusion on. But what I noticed is that uh, candidates uh, score or are perceived better on an interview when there is some recruiter also present. Just uh, I remember one case when uh, one of my colleagues who was the recruiter on an interview was saying that there were these two developers, one from the client, one candidate, and they just didn't talk to each other. They're like, here I am. And the second was, here I am, just trying to interview you. You know, and they were these two introverts, didn't really know what to talk about. <laughs> so so the recruiter, you know, present was trying to facilitate the discussion. And uh, I, I just think if she was not present, then it would be a complete disaster because, uh, you know, probably they would just wrap it up after 10 minutes of uh, silence or just some very awkward <laughs> talk. And uh, didn't didn't really uh, thoroughly interview the candidate. You know, at the end of the day, especially when people work remotely, they don't meet. It's about some facilitation, facilitation of interviews. And, you know, candidates also don't show up on interviews. So we need to nudge them. We need to uh, call them a few hours before the interview. You know, there is a lot happening behind the scenes in, in the recruitment just to make it work for, for hiring managers uh, properly. So it's really crazy these days. Yeah, I find it really. I, I find the, uh, the the technical interview particularly interesting because of, as you were saying, you know, you you often find that you've got a number of introverts on on those calls. Some of them want to be there. Some of them actually don't want to be there. Some of them is part of a career development plan. And I, I've been on a couple of calls where you've got introverts who are uncomfortable, but that call will go on for a very very long time. Sometimes an hour and a half, two hours with very little that's been said and people are following scripts. And I think it's a really interesting point where there's actually a, a lack of interview experience, you know, and, and I think that's a bad experience for candidates. I think it's, you're not necessarily evaluating somebody within the role that they're going to play in an organization. And I, I, but, but I think it's a, it's a much deeper topic that I think we'll probably, maybe we'll uncover it slowly but surely through as we as we do more and more episodes on this show but i think it, that the whole the whole world of recruitment and how you get from finding a good recruiter making sure the recruiters are, are able to are able and capable of finding good quality candidates to actually getting the interviews working on site and then putting candidates through that 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 mill i mean it's it's a fundamental part of everything we do and i think it's just a it's it's a fascinating industry, I think, that's always changing. I think it's been a particularly insightful uh, conversation for for how you've been how you've been approaching that. Cool, cool. Thank you, thank you. Are there any other points that we should be covering at, at this point? Like, I mean, what what have we missed, Michael? <laughs> well, uh, this is such a broad topic in general that we could talk uh, for hours about about everything, and we will still not cover everything, right? So. <laughs> So we can we can leave it for some future episode, I guess. Uh, well, I think you know, with your company growing and going through this never-ending mire of COVID, I think it would be fascinating to uh, to, to see how you work your way through it eventually. <laughs> if we ever get out of it, if we ever get back to some <laughs> sense of normality, so I, I think maybe it, maybe it is something we could uh, we could bring back as a as a future conversation and see how how things have progressed. Mm, that would be fun in a year or two to discuss yeah. uh, what has changed, how has it uh, all evolved. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you very much, Michael, for being on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And um, I've learned a lot. Thanks for having me. It was, it was fun. Very nice uh, talking to you. So that was Michael. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Well, I sure did. Good, good, good. And uh, we've got a cool episode lined up for you next week. So next week we have Francisco Baptista, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, of Team Sports, who will be talking to us about their cool little invention which helps track your form as you exercise. It's very, very good. It's a very good one. So uh, join us next week for that one. And do, once again, let us know what you thought of the episode, what you think of the show. Um, Best way to do that, leave us a review. Yeah, nice five-star review on Apple. They really do help. They really do. And, uh, yeah, engage with us on the socials. Let us know where you're from. All right. See you next week. See you next week.